Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob here and I've got Innovation and Entrepreneurship, a growth model for Europe beyond the crisis. And I've got Daria Tatai with me today. Daria, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bob, for inviting me. Now, before we dive into this, you just told me that you're in a lovely part of Europe. Where are you right now? I am in Barcelona, one of the most beautiful capitals in the world. So, I wanted to ask you because you're, you, you know your book's about... Um, the growth model for Europe beyond the crisis, and you know this is what's been going for quite a long time. How is uh, Barcelona doing compared to the rest of Europe? So, uh, particularly today, Barcelona is doing uh, an amazing thing because it has just attracted over a hundred thousand people. Can you imagine? Today, there is one hundred thousand people who travel to Barcelona for the World Mobile Congress which is the top industry event. Um, and as, as, as we know, uh, mobile uh, communication is really uh, what drives innovation. Oh, absolutely. It's, that's a crazy, crazy industry to be in. Um, do you think that, comp- uh, that countries in Europe that are being more innovative and, and are driving people to their uh, core cities are recovering faster and doing a better job in recovery than other countries that are still kind of locked into trying to keep everything within their country? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's let's try. Let's do a little bit math. If hundred thousand people came to Barcelona, let's say on average for three days, and each of them paid for the hotel, for the travel, for the restaurants, for the fun uh, nightlife in Barcelona. Look, the city just. Um, earned a substantial uh, cash inflow, uh, right? So I think that ability to attract smart people uh, for shorter or longer periods, it's really one of the markers uh, of, uh, of ability to drive innovation. And I think Barcelona is actually a role model for in many, many aspects. It is a creative city. It's full of design, art, music, street life. You can, you can sense the, uh, the vitality and uh, creativity of people. Um, but at the same time, it's extremely uh, international. It's extremely well equipped to become, uh, and it is actually becoming one of the really innovation hubs in Europe. So, uh, so the Congress is, is just one of the big events. It's happening here. But uh, rightly so, if a place can attract smart people, surely we should pay attention that uh, there is some innovation going on there. Is it, um, you know, like here in Vancouver, it's a very nice place to live in the world. If you have a city or, or, or a country that's in a nice climbs and it's got a nice economic environment, um, people that have lots of things they can do after work, it tends to to uh, attract the, the best and the brightest. Does that give it an, an unfair advantage or, or basically a leg up over other countries? Um, so in my book, I'm trying to answer this question. How does this happen that certain countries um, are able to boost growth, uh, are able to create uh, great companies, 
are able to um, create, you know, uh, fair uh, societies. Uh, and others, you know, uh, whatever they do, they stay behind. And um, and I've traveled the world and, and I've done research on a number of different models um, to try to understand whether there is a model today in our current environment, uh, global environment, and whether this model can be replicated. And this is what my book is about. So basically it answers the question, how to drive growth through innovation and entrepreneurship and uh, whether this model can be replicated uh, elsewhere. Uh, and um, the way I approach it is looking at um, the facts and data, um, both statistical statistical data, but also uh, interviewing a number of uh, people from thought leaders, from great entrepreneurs to students or to simply, you know, uh, working class people. Um, to to help me understand how today in this networked world of mobility, of commuting, of communication, being real-time, uh, virtual, um, uh, at the same time, uh, you know, having this multimodal uh, mode of, of functioning, how does this happen? How how all this works? Because this is a very complex system, much more complex that, than it used to be. Uh, and uh, there are basically three ingredients that I found everywhere. And these are uh, first, talent, so people. Second, uh, capital, that is money, basically. And third is knowledge. So a knowledge meaning that uh, there is some kind of know-how uh, that can be uh, codified, so can be written down, or is tacit. So, um, for example, uh, a lot of uh, knowledge workers today carry with them uh, the dimension of uh, of um, knowledge that it, it's not really easily transferred. You need to be part of a network to have access to information. Um, to and 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 to cut the long story short, uh, you need talent, uh, you need uh, money, and you need knowledge. And if these three resources uh, gather in one place, then um, uh, innovation happens. Now the question is you know, how to accumulate all these resources in one place. And here when the government policies kick in. Uh, so you can say that in the U.S., this is this laissez-faire uh, approach, laissez-faire meaning, yeah, the market will do everything. In many European countries, there is a very different approach. Um, this most innovative uh, countries in the world, like Finland, uh, like Sweden, um, uh, believe that a fair society uh, is, um, uh, is, is, is is a much better model. Um, so uh, they've implemented a number of policies uh, that helps uh, bring innovation with the model uh, that they uh, that they believe is is the right thing. Now, one key element of this is education. Uh, and in my book, I talk a lot about what does it mean to learn today, how people learn. And, and uh, you know, you surely agree that uh, the era when professors were expected to know best is gone. Today, students know faster uh, the answer than the professor manages to finish the question. 
Uh, but it's it's something different that a good uh, schools should provide. It's um, it's an environment where students can learn how to become um, a professional, how to become a leader, how to become a team player. So this aspect of emerging reality, the world is simply changing so fast that uh, we need to help uh, young people um, understand how to deal with this ever-changing reality. And um, frankly, you know, uh, you need role models for this. Uh, so if you want to have more entrepreneurs, you cannot teach them by telling them about uh, who was a great entrepreneur, but you need this face-to-face -face interaction. Uh, you need to have the relationship. And, um, and this is what I've observed in Helsinki, for example, at uh, one of the most fascinating schools, Aalto um, uh, University, uh, how the students boosted the whole entrepreneurial fever, uh, which coincided with the European economic crisis, uh, which resulted in lack of opportunities, uh, which at the same time was the moment where Nokia suddenly started to turn down. And we know that what happened over the last years that out of one of the largest telecoms, uh, one of the largest uh, mobile phone producers, now its market share uh, is it, a fraction of what, what it used to be. Yep. Yeah, well, definitely that there's been some huge changes in, in the the power and the, the influence of, of companies over the last 10 years or over the last couple of years too. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, before we uh, dive too deeply into the book, why did you think it was important that this book comes out now? I've been working on a book for a number of years and um, the book talks about the post-crisis world and some countries managed to recover quicker than others. The European countries are still struggling how to uh, return to the path of growth. Uh, and so um, the moment that this book appears now, when Europe is uh, reconsidering, when European Commission is reconsidering at a European scale, what should be done to help um, to boost entrepreneurship, to boost innovation, how to translate this immense innovation capacity into growth, new jobs. I felt that, that this is the, the timely moment um, for, for the book to appear. Uh, in, in a broader sense, this is a moment where uh, many European countries uh, and the European Union reflect on a, the so-called midterm uh, review of its seven-year uh, investment plan in innovation. Uh, you may know that um, what is you know, what is called Horizon 2020 um, initially had uh, almost 80 billion euro to be invested over seven years in innovation. Then it was a bit uh, cut with the uh, Juncker, uh, so-called Juncker plan. But still, it's one of the uh, largest uh, public. Uh, programs to invest in research and innovation. And it's right now the midterm review coming up next year. So a reflection on how innovation works, what was done well uh, over the last um, years, especially experimenting with um, establishing the so-called knowledge innovation communities, let's call them the kicks. 
um, and a new institution, uh, a European MIT, that is uh, European Institute of Innovation and Technology, which by no means is a, a university like uh, MIT, but rather a network of best research universities in Europe with uh, matched with um, great companies uh, who create a new type, a very Europe-specific type of a network uh, innovation organism. You know, I wanted to ask you, do you think Europe is trying to restructure Europe the way Europe used to be, or it's evolving into a new Europe? <laughs> that, that's a very important question. Um, and I think that um, I should say that whether people like it or not, the future will not be like the past. So Europe doesn't really have a choice. Um, and uh, the less is done, the more difficult the future will be. Um, the book ends with um, a question directed to young people, basically, and it's a question about identity, whether young Europeans will decide to be entrepreneurial and take the future into their hands and create opportunities for their, their own uh, sake, or will they wait, um, like the previous generation, for the state to create opportunities for them? I think that the second option is simply out um, with the, what we witness happening um, on on a number of dimensions, starting with the uh, migration issues, a number of uh, migrants coming from Middle East uh, to uh, to Europe, uh, starting with the demographic crisis in Europe, uh, meaning aging population, uh, then going through uh, the lack of uh, really lack of imperatives to growth on a number of. Uh, in a number of uh, industrial uh, zones. Um, so no, the question is, uh, the answer is simple. Europe has no other choice. It needs, it cannot afford uh, to uh, to take the same policies as it had in the past. Things must be done different if we want nothing much to change, to quote, uh, to quote a great, great movie. Well, you know, it, it, what's interesting about Europe uh, these days also is because of the, the, the union of all the different um, countries that if you have a European passport, you can work in all those countries with little or no paperwork uh, compared to if you're, let's say, you're in Canada, you go down to the States, there's very, very difficult to do work. Or if you go to Canada, go to Mexico, it's a little harder to, you know, start a company or work for a company down there. Um because of that, do you think it gives Europe a, a slightly better advantage to have the best and the brightest move to the areas that they're going to uh, have the most benefit? Um, you can work in whatever country of the European Union if you're a citizen of one of them. It's true. And the single market is a tremendous opportunity for uh, educated people, especially, uh, but I think that more people could take advantage and, and this can be approached on a negative tone that it's a brain drain that simply more entrepreneurial, smarter people will leave uh, places where there is no opportunity and go to, uh, to places where these opportunities emerge. 
But I believe that there is um, a great value for people to uh, go live somewhere, uh, live, uh, learn, work, and then come back and share. Um, and, and, and this is a, a big, uh, this brings a lot of learning by doing. Uh, this brings diversity and this brings uh, certain uh, openness, um, certain values, which I would call cultural values, which really enrich um, the, uh, the local uh, communities and, and, and cities. Um, there is a program, uh, actually, it's, it's one of the most successful programs of the European Union called Marie Curie Mobility Programs. And basically, the idea is that every uh, European student uh, should uh, go um, and spend at least a semester studying in a different country in the European Union. I think it's just fantastic that young people are encouraged to do so, that there are resources uh, that help them do this. There is a whole framework. And the same later goes with, with work. People who studied abroad know languages. People who studied abroad, whether they work later abroad or return home, um, their value on, on a job market is, is, is much higher. Um, so um, I hope that Europe could take more benefit out of the single market and, and mo encourage more uh, mobility. Yeah, I noticed a lot of, um, when I was uh, working in, in Asia, there was a lot of repatriation happening with the uh, doctors that were had you know been in the States for many, many years, sometimes 30 years, and had repatriated back with all that knowledge. And these guys were like the, the doctor I work with, you know, he'd spent 35 years in Chicago at one of the top hospitals and all that knowledge that he learned all that information he had brought back to Thailand and the hospitals that were actually actively headhunting doctors out and back into Thailand um, was one of the best hospitals he's ever worked with he said so I think you know that whole theory of the repatriation of of skill sets into a country that that person was born into and educated into is incredibly important. And you're right. I don't think there's a proper structure to support that attitude towards career. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, in your book, you know, it, it's, a, it's a relatively thick book. There's so much information. How should somebody read the book? Is it a book that they can kind of read the introduction and then jump to the section that's going to work best for them? Or is it some, should they kind of go from the beginning all the way through to the end to get the most out of it? Um, actually, I wanted to write this book in a way that every chapter can be read separately. So uh, it's um, it's as if you can read it two ways. You can either read, uh, you know, chapter by chapter. Then there's a certain narrative, certain rational, certain deeper deeper thought. But otherwise, each little chapter is actually a little story, um, taking one idea, one concept illustrating it so you can open the book anywhere uh, and uh, and just read uh, you know one even one sub chapter uh, this is this was my idea you know today people travel and um, uh, and they want to have something that is not necessarily very big to read so this is why I designed the book that it can be read uh, both ways either as a collection of short stories on innovation from all around the world, or 
is a more uh, academic, um, well-thought-through narrative taking uh, and deconstructing uh, the world and making a theory of a growth model uh, that can be replicated. And this, and this growth model, you know, is, is based on, on understanding the world uh, in a networked age. And, um, and I think that um, not many um, books bring um, the dimension of innovation, entrepreneurship, and the networked aspect, this networking, this different networks uh, into, into one equation. And this is what I was trying to do. Um, you know, for, for readers in North America, is there a, a specific chapter or section of the book that you think that they will get the most benefit from? <laughs> um, well, in one part of the book, I talk uh, about University of Michigan um, because I I was living in Ann Arbor at a certain moment, and actually I started writing the book and I finished writing uh, the book at the University of Michigan. Um, and I came to Michigan at a moment where the university was uh, was um, embarking on a very interesting uh, route, uh, a strategic shift, how to turn around a great research university and make it a both uh, research-oriented and entrepreneurial at the same time. And I was um, uh, at the College of Engineering and at the Ross Business School and could observe how two very different models of entrepreneurship education and, and support for students interested and for faculty interested in, in uh, looking into commercializing their uh, inventions and, and or patenting, uh, how uh, how to turn around? And Michigan, you know, it's 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 an interesting story. Uh, when you look at Detroit, um, it's uh, if I remember correctly, the only city in the U.S. that consistently has been losing population since the riots in mid 1960s. Um, and then uh, you have this just an hour drive from Detroit. You have this one of the world's best uh, universities, uh, an amazing, an amazing University of Michigan with so much talent, so much potential. And now, how to turn this knowledge into growth and jobs in the uh, Detroit area? Right. So this is basically the same question as I'm uh, as I was um, asking myself in relation to Europe. How can you transform these great research universities in Europe so that um, there can be uh, growth and jobs created in, the, in their cities? Um, so I think that for some readers, this story about uh, Michigan may be interesting. For others, I talk also about Silicon Valley, and usually people think of Silicon Valley as um, Palo Alto, all these high-tech companies, as Stanford, and so on. But I talk more about my discovery of a different phase of Silicon Valley, and this relates to my stay at Santa Clara University in San Jose. Uh, where I discovered that actually what you see on the surface, right, what you see in the media, what you see, you know, in the uh, kind of general stereotypes, what is Silicon Valley, suddenly you discover that at a great Jesuit university as, uh, as um, Santa Clara, they also educate um, uh, students who work for these high-tech companies. 
and that they care about the mission. At, at Santa Clara, for example, I learned about the whole concept of impact investment, um, about Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists who care to invest not only to make returns on their capital, but also make a social impact. And, and I was researching and looking into the notion of social entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, these are just uh, images of the U.S. Uh, that are not uh, broadly known. And I think that they, they take a much more nuanced approach to what really makes Silicon Valley tick. Um, uh, beyond uh, beyond the uh, you know the uh, the general the general story, um, so these are two 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 aspects where I talk explicitly about the U.S. But the third thing is that many um, many universities in the U.S. also think about transforming their strategy. So this can be interesting for them how to turn a university towards becoming a more entrepreneurial uh, driven. I also talk about many companies uh, which want to become more innovative and how this happens, how to become more innovation driven in a networked age. What does open innovation mean? What does it mean uh, and how to orchestrate innovation networks within the company and between the companies and between the company and its uh, customers, its employees, users, its suppliers. I think that that um, this can be a nice read for, uh, for leaders and for uh, people who ask themselves a question, how, where, where, how do I boost growth? How do I make my environment more innovative? And how do I translate this innovation into value. So for a university rector, this value we mean will mean better students, right? Or better research. Um, but this value for a company will mean better value for shareholders. And this value for NGOs will mean, well, how do I translate this innovation into value for the society? So uh, I tried to make uh, a book about understanding the world around us. Um, and um, and I, I wrote it out of my own curiosity. I wanted to understand the world because we were at a time designing or redesigning um, certain um, paradigms for, for Europe. So this was driven by my curiosity as a researcher, but also by a very concrete mission uh, establishing uh, a new uh, European Institute of Innovation and Technology as a game changer uh, for Europe. Do you think that there, that's that's the, the the key thing in Europe right now is to to have institutions and organizations that work with the institutions to create more of a networked group of entrepreneurs so that they're relying uh, on how uh, they grow and and develop as as business people. So Europe has fantastic networks. Europe is very networked. Uh, and this goes uh, through all the efforts to create a single market. This goes through all the effort to create a single digital market, or all the, uh, the so-called European research area. 
at the so-called European higher education area. When you look from a political perspective, right, uh, with uh, all the uh, standardization and uh, harmonizing legal frameworks, but this also goes to all those efforts to really bring people together, to have them communicate. Now, the challenge is not to have more networks. The challenge is how to have these networks be orchestrated and how to have these networks um, create value. In my book, I talk a lot about networks and how does this happen? What are these, um, uh, the architecture of networks uh, that makes them uh, create value? What are different dynamics, like I talk about multi-layering and switching capacity? Uh, because imagine you can be part of a network, right? Let's take Facebook. But, uh, you know, it, it depends uh, who you are on your uh, Facebook um, um, fan page uh, that uh, who you are, what is your brand, what is your communication power, uh, how do you must self-communicate um, so that you can translate what you potentially um, could say and to whom could, you could say it to translate it into, for example, how many people will, um, will learn about your new project or your, your new initiative, whatever it is. Uh, so I think that, that Europe really does not need more networks. Europe needs more work uh, down to earth how to have this system function uh, better. Well, do you think that it's because the countries are so diverse, they come from all these different cultural backgrounds and they've got a very, very long history um, that, you know, you, you have kind of like the, the super countries that are doing very, very well. They've got a much bigger structure. They have way more cash flow. There's more harmony in the country. Then you've got like a certain set of country, countries that are driving themselves to try and be more like those countries. And, but then you kind of got, got your poor cousins at the very, very bottom that are really struggling and holding back some of the other countries. How can... Do you, do you have to kind of look at more on a, on a socialist way where you say, well, we have to give more money to these countries so that they can develop or basically cut them off and say they're just going to have to figure it out themselves because they're not willing to work within the new systems? Um, well, <laughs> Bob, you're really trying to, <laughs> to pin me down, don't you? Huh? <laughs> well, it's, it's you know, if, if you've got a, you know, we're talking about innovation and, and, and being entrepreneurship, which is a great way to build up. But if you have a country that's um, struggling on with, with basic stuff and they don't have any cash flow happening in the country, it makes it very hard to be entrepreneurial uh, and survive, you know, you can... And, you can start up a business, but you can also quite easily fail at that business. So I wanted to know, do you think there is disparity still, or is that part of just the formula of working in Europe that there are countries that just traditionally don't work as well? Um, of course you're right. Um, there are very different specific situations at a uh, level of a country, but also within a country at a level of a region, at a level of a city, but also in a city at a level of a neighborhood, right? Why in certain neighborhoods suddenly all these startups pop up? I looked at Berlin and a couple of years, uh, you know, like 10 years ago, there were maybe uh, four, five venture funds if, if not less, 
today there's today uh, Berlin is considered one of the most uh, entrepreneurial cities, attracting um, you know, a lot of venture capital. Um, so how does how does this happen? And it, it is not the whole Berlin. These are all only certain neighborhoods in Berlin. Um, so definitely, there's no one uh, strategy uh, copy paste and one model fits all. But at the same time, there are certain um, there is certain blueprint, and uh, and I was truly making an effort trying to understand it, how to put this all together, what uh, a, a local government, uh, what a country government can do to bring together the education system, the system of research institutes, um, the industrial policy, um, the policy towards small companies, and how to have this integrate in a new way. And it is a process. It's not a linear process, but does mean that it needs to be a chaotic process. Um, and, um, uh, and uh, of course, there's a lot of entrepreneurship by necessity, uh, that people simply don't have any other opportunities. Uh, but um, you can also look at this, uh, that uh, it's, it's a success of a local community if people decide to take risk, you know, put their sleeves up, have their hands dirty, rather than wait for the welfare state to pay them uh, unemployment. Um, so... Um, so let, let's be positive. I think that in every smallest neighborhood, if only um, there is a role model, if only there is uh, a bit of innovation culture, other people will learn, will get together, will be inspired. This all needs to be happening around schools, around, um, you know, individuals who simply take initiative and start, uh, like in Barcelona, um, I'm totally fascinated by this urban garden movement. You know, people simply start, uh, you know, having little gardens all around the city to have fresh uh, vegetables and, and fresh herbs. I think it's just fascinating. So, so many little things can happen, but, uh, but be it for-profit or non-for-profit, I think it's important that people, you know, are creative and, and, and have a passion for, for turning the world around them. Well, it, you know, going back to the concept of, of a city is basically a, a, a model that, like Europe is structured on, like you, you'll have a city, you'll have of certain parts of it that are poorer than others, and that tends to make it harder to educate that that area. And unless you have some outstanding outstanding citizens that are going to do uh, stuff above and beyond the call, it's really not going to move much forward. So it's could you look at Europe uh, to develop it and 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 help it move forward in a way that. You know, some some countries are are more profitable parts of the city, and other neighborhoods or other countries that aren't struggling as well, they should have um, people going in and helping them out on, really not not on an economic way, but almost on a social uh, headspace way. We say, look, at, we need people to step up. We need people to be less uh, greed oriented and and more community oriented, and that should start in the schools. 
Bob, you know I'm Polish, right? Uh, and, I, and I think that one of the most wonderful examples over the last 30 years from all around the globe of, of a country and a society that has totally reinvented itself is Poland. Is Poland, it, over the last 25 years, you cannot imagine uh, how Poland looked 25 years ago and how it looks today. Uh, in terms of a, you know, a, a street in Warsaw, um, a street in Krakow or Wrocław. Um, anywhere you look, uh, something magical has happened. And Poland, um, over 25 years, managed to have now one of the top education systems in the world. Um, it has been growing consistently for the 25 years. I think it's the only country in, 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 in the entire globe that had such a growth period. Uh, it's society, it's true, it's still having a lot of problems, unemployment being one of them, especially among young people. But at the same time, uh, you know, there, there was a whole, whole private sector, sector of small and mid-sized companies uh, virtually developed over this entrepreneurial um, generation. So I, I think that you can really reinvent the system. For this, you need a fair, a stable uh, legal and political framework. Uh, you need uh, a dream of citizens. Uh, and for us, definitely joining the European Union was, <laughs> was ultimately a dream that no one really believed can come true, and, and yet it did. But at the same time, you need a lot of simply hard work. Um, to uh, to to grab on the opportunity and uh, and uh, and believe in yourself uh, that after all uh, Poland has been called uh, by a great historian Norman Davis God's playground. We had such a turbulent turbulent history, uh, and yet today this can really be given as an example. For, for all other nations that are struggling, that yes, that you can do it. Um, so, um, you know, the most important thing is, and this is why I truly love America for this, and I love Americans, is this attitude that yes, I can do it. And I think Europe should have more of, of this, right? So I think America could learn from uh, European uh, innovation policies um, uh, about education, for example, uh, but definitely uh, Europe will benefit if young people go and, and, and travel across the U.S. and uh, go to um, study abroad and then come back um, to have this wonderful, wonderful culture uh, that I admire so much in, in, in you, in, in, in Americans. This yes culture, yes, I can, I can do it. <laughs> North America's got a, a very get up and go and okay, I'm just going to try and do that and if I fail, oh well. Um, what what makes United States citizens and, and, and people in North America have this attitude? Is it just because of their history? Is it because of their education? Why, why is that? Is it because it's just kind of isolated a little bit and even though there's all these states, they're still the same culture? Um, and and that's what enables it to be a little bit stronger, or is it something entirely different? You know, um, I have a very personal answer to this. I think it's because people in America are grateful. And of course, not all, but I was surprised so many times by um, sometimes very simple people who are doing 
uh, really basic work for very little money and who are truly grateful that they are capable of doing this work, that they have work, and that um, this, this gratefulness was really giving meaning to, to every moment of, 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 of their, um, you know, uh, life. And I was jealous. I was jealous because I think that the worst can happen for a wealthy society and European Union is definitely a dream, uh, a dream place for hundreds of thousands of people is when you forget how, um, how lucky you are. Um, and I think that, that this gratefulness is really a power, is an engine on top of all other uh, values like risk-taking and diversity and optimism and individualism and so on. But I really admire this very humble, um, humble gratitude uh, in, in many American I'm at, uh, and I think that that you know uh, Europe would benefit for European citizens would benefit if we thought with more humbleness how lucky we are uh, that we're having lights um, in these times in our our beautiful Europe. Well, you know that it almost seems to me that like Poland went through some very very hard times. It's had a tumultuous history, and now they're shining because they have a very similar attitude. It's like, look at it. it's it's our time to to do well. We've basically we've done it the hard way. Let's see if we can move forward and and make this a better place to be. And have it's almost got an American attitude toward, towards uh, getting it done. Um, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think you're right, Bob. I think you're. I think you're right, and I think it's a compliment <laughs> to <laughs> Polish people. <laughs> so you know, I, I think you know. You look at North America. There's so many entrepreneurs, and and in Europe, there's many, many, many entrepreneurs. Obviously, um, and around the world, there's many, many entrepreneurs. Those are entrepreneurs are ten basically a certain type of person that will go out and they're going to risk it. They're they're going to. You know what? I'm going to build this. Uh, bakery or you know what I want to go out there and, and be my own boss do you think that as the word evolves and we and and becomes more educated and, and more people can communicate with each other globally that uh, entrepreneurship is becoming more and more in an important way of uh, doing or uh, creating work for yourself and then ultimately globally uh, it will help the economy uh, for sure yes for sure, yes. But let me also share a little story. I, I was in Palm Springs at the UI uh, Entrepreneurship Strategic Growth Forum, which gathered top American entrepreneurs and uh, you know people who became billionaires over a very short period of time. And I was listening to their speeches in this conference, and I tweeted. Uh, a couple of times because it was just overwhelming for me that they all, they were not only grateful, um, but also on top of this, the most successful ones displayed a big uh, responsibility, a kind of social responsibility. Um, for example, the, 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 first, the, the person who created Chabani the yogurt, uh, he was telling, he was telling the story how he started and and then um, you could really say that, you know, what social policies do in Europe with all the expectations that the state should, should be fair and should ensure that citizens are fairly treated, 
in America, this is this single individual person um, feeling responsibility not only for the family but for the community, for the workers, for um, for the uh, consumers, and you know. And I wish that America had more of this image of what does this mean to be a successful entrepreneur? Because quite often, for example, when you look at the elections and what, you know, uh, Mr. Trump is saying, I mean, this is ultimately irresponsible towards so many, so many people uh, and, and disrespectful on, on so many different levels. Um, and I think that this ethos of American entrepreneur, a self-made person, should be really more um, moderated towards those who are, whom I had a chance to, to, to listen to. We've been chatting with Daria. Her book, Innovation and Entrepreneurship, A Growth Model for Europe Beyond the Crisis. Daria, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you both so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.